0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thanking you that you are not only our Creator, but also that you have sent our Redeemer, your precious Son, Jesus, who came into this world to suffer and die and rise again, winning the victory over sin, death, and the grave for all people. We thank and praise you that you have guided us to him through the water and word of holy baptism, that you have called us to be your children, restored all of our uh, connection with you once again, washed away all of our sins, and made us heirs of everlasting life. We pray you continue to send your Holy Spirit to us, especially as we continue our study in your word this day. May we continue to grow in our knowledge and in our understanding of that word, and especially how it applies to us in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So last week we began our new study of the Gospel of John, written by John the Apostle, remember? The uh, brother of James and the son of Zebedee. And we did some background uh, looking last week at uh, not only the author and his uh, station in life, and uh, a little conjecture as to who uh, his mother may have been, and so on. And we got through verses 6 through 8 of John chapter 1, and we'll pick up there and move forward here today. So John chapter 1, and we'll just go back briefly to verses 6 through 8, and then uh, we'll get a running start, and then we'll go uh, forward from there. So verses 6 through 8, we see here in these verses a contrast that is being formed between John the Baptist and Jesus. And there is great length taken here to make the distinction between John the Baptist and Jesus. And it seems to us that John the Baptist had quite a following. In fact, we know that from historical sources outside of the scriptures that people were coming out from all over uh, Judea uh, in order to hear him, and there was a lot of conjecture about who is this guy John? Is he the Christ who is to come? Is he the prophet? Is he Elijah? We'll get into these as we go. But verse 6, "...there was a man sent from God whose name was John." He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And again, if you contrast that with what we saw at the beginning of the Gospel of John in the first two verses, we see quite a a contrast here. That first of all, he was sent by God. He is not God. As we saw in John 1, verse 1, he is sent from God. Nonetheless, he's still very important, being sent from God. And the uh, word for being sent in Greek is apostello, where we get the apostle from, sent out with authority. Okay, But he's not, he's, his name was John. He came, what did he come to do? To bear witness to the light, okay? That all, and, and to Bear witness to the light was his purpose, but then the result of that is so that notice there all might believe through him. So he's come to bear witness, and the word for witness is in, in Greek is where we get the word martyr from, martyr o. He came to bear witness to the light, to bear witness to Christ, and that so that all might believe through him. And then very clearly he was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. So a clear distinction there, again, stated in several different ways that this John the Baptist was not the one. He came to bear witness to the light. Kind of uh, like what we get with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit comes with only one purpose in mind, and that is to confess or to uh, lead people to Jesus. Not himself, but to Jesus. Same sort of thing. All right, now going down, let's go ahead now, starting at verse 9. The true light, which would be Christ, which gives light, notice there's a, that's a present tense, still gives light, right? He didn't come and just give light then, it's present tense, the true light which gives light to everyone. Didn't come for just a select few people but gives light to or for everyone, was coming into the world. His incarnation was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. We looked at that last week, that we think of the Father as the creator, but again, the Son, it was through the Son that everything was made. So he was sort of the agent or the vehicle. So the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Let me just stop for a second that uh, you see this throughout the Gospel of John, this kind of opposition between Jesus and the world. And that phrase, the world, is used 78 times in the Gospel of John. And most of those times, it's again in opposition to Christ and his mission and his ministry. And, you know, we can look around today and see much the same thing. The world is not, um, you might say, predisposed to Christ and his message, is it? In fact, we think of that triumvirate that we battle against. The devil, the world, and our old sinful flesh, right? Our old sinful nature that we still carry around with us. And so John is recognizing this one aspect, the world, which did not know him, and certainly does not receive him. And then verse 11. He came to his own people. Now, who would his own people be? The Jews, right. He came to the Jews, the lost house of Israel. And did they receive him? No. Came to his own people, did not, his own people did not receive him. And. Now, there were, of course, a couple of a few exceptions that we know about, like Nicodemus in the New Testament was even a member of the Sanhedrin, or a member of the council, and he certainly believed. In fact, when Jesus is put to death and, and dies, he comes bearing the, the uh, spices to prepare the body of Jesus for burial. And remember, Joseph of Arimathea would be another example. He also, a member of the council... And it's in his tomb that Jesus is buried, or is, is set after he dies. But by and large, he came to his own people, and his own people rejected him. Okay? And the irony of that, when you go all the way back into the Old Testament, that God's chosen people were the people of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's people and they weren't chosen for anything special that was in them, they we weren't chosen for the fact that they were a huge, some huge nation, just the opposite. And it wasn't, they weren't chosen because of any great moral characteristics that they had. It was simply God's grace, His undeserved mercy and love that caused Him to choose them. And we can say the same about ourselves, can't we? It's not anything in us It's simply God's grace and mercy that he has chosen us and that through Christ we are his. There are times in the Old Testament that God's people are referred to as his son, that Israel is referred to as his son in the Old Testament. And unfortunately, that son, the people of Israel, were not faithful. Now comes the one true son of God, the one who will be perfect The one who will be sort of Israel reduced to one before God. And he will be faithful, perfectly faithful, where the people of Israel were not. And it's only through baptism then that we are called sons of God. That we share in that perfect obedience of Christ and are called to be true sons of God. As Paul says, no longer slaves, no longer servants, but sons. Because what did the son get in the family? The inheritance, right? And our inheritance is everlasting life, never-ending life in the presence of God. And that's what Jesus does for us, okay? But to all who did receive him, verse 11, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become Children of God. So let's stop there for a second. All who believed him, it is through faith that we receive this right to be called children of God. Notice there, it's not our right to begin with, is it? It's not a right we have. We're not entitled to that by our very sinful nature. But notice the gift language there. He gave the right to become children of God. And again, it is through faith and trust. That is it. There's nothing that we do or don't do. There's nothing that, you know, makes us stand out from other people. It is simply a gift given from God. The right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is God who brings this about. And later on, we'll see in chapter 3, when Jesus has that uh, almost at times amusing, if not somewhat comical discussion with Nicodemus, when he says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can that be? He's thinking of a physical birth. And again, if you're born of water, and unless you're born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And again, this is God's work not our work, and it's nothing we are entitled to or we have a right to have or to get on our own, okay? Uh, Let's stop for a moment. Any comments, questions before we, yeah, Mark? The idea of knowing him, that the world not know him. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, So the, the comment for those listening on radio was about this idea of knowing him, that they did not know him, whereas the others did. Now, there's a, in, in John, the word for know means more than just, I know some facts. I have a, an intellectual knowledge that this guy exists out there. It means much more of an intimate relationship of faith and trust. And so that's a good point, that through the Gospel of John, we've got to keep that in mind, Uh, when it says, knowing Him. And the world does not know Him, of course, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And we have the same conundrum today. We have uh, people, uh, you put 100 people in a room and give them the same message about Jesus, and maybe 10 will receive it by faith and 90 will, you know, just walk away. And again, we say, remember, that when someone is saved, who gets the credit for that? God does. Right. When someone someone is not saved, when someone rejects God's offer of forgiveness, grace, and mercy, is that God's fault? No. It's the person's fault. And so, same thing here. We get the world in general, and we do see people coming to faith and receiving him. And knowing him to be more than just a prophet or a teacher, but the Christ, Son of the living God. Okay? Was there another hand somewhere? I thought I saw no- Yeah, uh, David. Well, a lot of these were coming out to see John the Baptist, all there be a lot of Jews in there. Yes. So the comment was, those who were coming to see John the Baptist, there had to be a lot of Jews in that crowd. In fact, they were uh, primarily Jews. Uh, I think I mentioned this last week, that in the Gospel of John, we hear most about Jesus' ministry and his conflicts with those in Judea and around Jerusalem, whereas with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we hear most about him up north in Galilee and his ministry there. And we're going to see even today about the conflict that you can just see is, is building with the chief priests and the Pharisees and others. And so, yeah, there were a lot of Jews coming out. In fact, uh, we'll see that they they even sent out a scouting uh, team from Jerusalem to find out what's this guy John the Baptist doing out there. Who is this guy? Yeah. Okay, any more before we move ahead? All right. Verse 14 is really key. Because when you're reading along in the first chapter of John, and you hear all about this word, and then you hear that the word is a he... And if we didn't know what, we'd know what we know, of course, we would say, well, who is this word? And what is this word? Verse 14 makes it unmistakably clear. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Okay, so let's stop there for a second the word now this refers right back to John 1:1 1, 1, right in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and literally in the greek god was the word although you usually don't translate it that way but that's the way the order is in the greek so that word up in verse 1 and remember in verse 1 John is emphasizing the fact that this word is divine that this word is god here in verse 14 just the opposite. He is emphasizing the fact that this word is also human and has come, has become flesh. There's a, a, the Greek word for flesh here means both body and spirit, or body and soul. It's used throughout the New Testament for that. Uh, it's a Greek word, sarx. And notice he came and dwelt among us. Guess what the word is for dwell tabernacled with us. He came and tabernacled with us. In other words, he pitched his tent uh, in our midst. Now, there are scholars who go on both sides of this. Some say, well, you know, the tabernacle, um, being a tent, is kind of indicates sort of a temporary, he's kind of here for his three-year public ministry, and then he's gone. But no... Probably not. I think we would say He is still with us. He came, and although He ascended to the right hand of the Father, remember He said, I will never leave you or forsake you, and lo, I am with you always. But remember in the Old Testament, where was God's presence when they were in the wilderness, in the tabernacle? that moving before the temple, pre-temple, that moving um, a center, I guess you'd say, a place of worship, and where God was present and promised to be present with his people. And now, he is with his people in the flesh. Okay, Not in some building, and not through a cloud or something of that nature, but he is here in the flesh with his people. By the way, we should talk for just a moment about this. Was Jesus sort of 50 percent man and 50 percent God, sort of a, Was he sort of a, a deluded God, maybe just a little you know, less power? And, or was he sort of an enhanced uh, human being? Was, you know? No. Uh, we get in trouble both ways in that. Uh, he is, when we don't claim to be able to understand this, but he is at the same time, 100 percent God and 100 percent man. Now, let's just say for a moment, why did Jesus have to be God? What what can only God do? Well, there's a lot of things I guess only God can do. But when it comes to keeping God's law, only God can keep that law perfectly, right? Without without one slip, without one mess-up. Why did he have to be man? Why did he have to be 100% human? So he could take our place, first of all, under that law, and then do one thing that he needed to do, die, and to give that life as a ransom for us, well, really, for all people, right? So he has to be both. And so John 1 verse 1 emphasizes that he is 100% God, and verse 14 emphasizes he's also 100% human except without sin. Right. The human part does not include sin. He is conceived by the Holy Spirit and is conceived, therefore, without sin. If Jesus had been conceived with sin or had sinned somehow, can he do anything for us? Nope. Not a thing. He's going to die for what? His own sin. Can't do anything. Can't give us anything. Okay. And that's why this is so important. This is not just sort of theoretical uh, theology. It is is vitally important uh, for us and for our eternal welfare. Okay? So he he tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's go back to the Old Testament for a moment. Where are some spots we see the glory of God in the Old Testament? One that comes to mind uh, right away, to me anyway, is Moses up on Mount Sinai. And there is uh, God in his glory. And we hear about thunder and and lightning and so on. Um, When the temple was dedicated, how did God show his glory? Great cloud came into that temple so that the priests could not even minister. Or you might say even earlier than all of this, Well, not, uh, yeah, it is earlier than all this. Uh, When God is leading his people through Moses, through the wilderness, how does he make his presence or his glory known? Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, right? And so there's spots through the Old Testament where we see God demonstrating his glory, majesty to his people, And also, very importantly, his presence, that he was with them there as they were traveling through the wilderness. Now, in the New Testament, we see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, don't we? We see all of his miracles that he does. We see him feeding 5,000 men, we don't know how many women and children, with just five loaves of bread and two fish. We see him giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and, and all kinds of different miracles. But in the Gospel of John, there's one thing that John really emphasizes that is not so much in the others, and that is the glory of God connected with the cross. And we're going to see this much later. When we get into the high priestly prayer, that where Jesus says, "Father, glorify Your name," and we hear the voice back, "I have and I will," basically, and it's it's on Monday, Thursday, He's going to the cross the very next within within twenty four hours, and so I've I've said before, if you want to see the true glory of this God, look no further than the cross and see there the God who loves you so much that he will even die, intentionally, voluntarily die for you and for all people. And John does a good job, we'll see it later on, as I said, of connecting the glory of God with the cross, okay? All right, Uh, so this one again, emphasizing the humanity, and if we go to verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So he's, he's above me, he's a higher rank than me. He was before me for from, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now let's stop there for a moment. Is it the case, we we think this is primarily, when he says the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus, we think this is simply a matter of proportion. So let's stop and think for a moment, was Moses only about the law in the Old Testament and Christ only about the gospel in the New Testament? No, both are false. There's a great deal of gospel in the Old Testament. In fact, take a look sometime at the first verse of Exodus 20, and there we see God saying, I am your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, right? Referring to the actual uh, saving and releasing of his people. And throughout the Old Testament, we have a great deal of gospel that is given, especially pointing ahead to the coming of the Savior, somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that are fil- fulfilled in Christ, and boy, there are times where Christ will speak law that could take the pain off of a wall, you know, uh, where there's going to be on the last day weeping and gnashing of teeth. It doesn't sound like gospel to me. And so sometimes people have this false dichotomy that, well, the Old Testament is all law, and guys like Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah, they are just law, that was it. No, not at all. And the New Testament, well, Jesus didn't say anything that was law. He said plenty that was law. And uh, we, we take a look at that. But again, many times people um, don't know that or, or have a false understanding of it. Now, the next verse is a rather interesting one. In fact, I know somebody that wrote their uh, uh, Ph.D. dissertation on this, and some of you know that person as well. Um, I won't say it over there. Uh, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, this is the way the ESV translates it, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So no one has ever seen God, and we would take this to mean In his full blast glory, his undiminished glory. Now there, if you want to keep your finger here, if you've got a paper Bible or if you've got the phone one, mark it. uh, Let's go back for a moment because there was a time when Moses asked to see the full glory of God. And let's go back for a moment to Exodus 33. And we're going to look at verses 18 through 23. Exodus thirty-three, eighteen 18 through 23. So this is Moses here talking with God and making a special request of God. So again, Exodus thirty-three, eighteen 18 through 23. Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, that would be? The word? Yahweh, right? See, when, when you're reading the Old Testament and all the letters are capitalized like that, that's God's personal name, Yahweh. I am that I am, or I am who I am. And this is, goes back to Exodus 3, where there was the burning bush, and uh, God calling Moses to follow him and tells him to go to his people and Moses replies well if I go to them and tell them and they ask well what's the name of this this God what should I say and then God responds with Yahweh I am who I am okay so notice uh, Yahweh and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy well there's some gospel in the Old Testament right there right and the Lord said behold there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face but my face shall not be seen. Now, first of all, does God have a hand? No. Uh, In fact, we always talk about the right hand of God, seated at the right hand of God. This, again, is a way of speaking, okay? So, Moses asks God to see his glory, and God says, you know what? There's a place over here. I'm going to put you in this cleft of a rock, this kind of hewn-out part of a rock, and my goodness is going to come by. But notice he does not let Moses see him face-to-face, so to speak, and only Moses can only see what his backside his backside now again we think god is not god does not have flesh and blood here the only time he did is in christ when he became incarnate so he is passing by and he will not allow Moses to see him in his full unbridled glory in fact he's going to shield Moses' eyes when he comes passing by Because what would happen? uh, Can anyone, any sinner, see God in all his glory and survive? No. And so God is for his own good, shielding him from that full beatific sight, right? And so uh, this is one place where we say, well, wait a minute. John says no one has ever seen God. Well, what about Moses in the Old Testament? And we would say, well, of course, he did see a diminished glory, you might say, not the full blast glory of God. And God did that for Moses and for his own good. Okay? So no one has ever seen God in his unbridled glory. And then the one that's really hard to interpret, but I think we've got it, is the very next phrase. See where it says, the only God? Actually, in the Greek, it is the only begotten God. Well, who is the only begotten of the Father? Jesus. So we think, first of all, notice how it's punctuated. No one has ever seen God, semicolon, the only begotten, we could say, the only begotten God who is at the Father's side, or actually is in the Father's bosom, has made him known. So who is the only begotten of God, who, has, who is in the Father's bosom, who has made God known, or revealed God? Jesus, that's right. And see where it's translated, the only God, or the only begotten God? It's the only place, in the entire Bible, where that phrase exists. And so we have to try to interpret this. So no one has seen God in his full glory, the only begotten God, or the only begotten of God, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known, or has revealed Him. Nor as Jesus has revealed Him. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Good point. Uh, in in uh, the Garden of Eden, you've got God walking, and again, we think that was not in His full glory, though, for Adam and Eve. Yeah. Yeah. We see God appearing and, and communicating. You also, another one that came to my mind is uh, the calling of Isaiah, where he goes up into the heavenly realm, and he sees cherubim and seraphim, and, and so on. And he says, what's his reaction? Woe is me. It's literally, oy vey. woe is me. <laughs> For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. So the reaction is always the same whenever you're in the presence of God, and if, if it's a diminished one as well. And you, you get several times in the New Testament where people realize they've been healed for, or, or, for, or uh, made well again, and they fall down and worship because they realize they're in the presence of God. And the same thing with Jesus. He, is not, he didn't come here in his full glory. We call that his state of humiliation, right? Not that he was embarrassed, but he did not make full use of his divine powers as he was here. Yes? Yes. Shaq and Abednego, right? Yeah. Uh, Thank you for that. So the question is, what about the pre-incarnate Christ appearing to people in the Old Testament? And there are definitely times where we believe that has occurred. Whenever you see the phrase, The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. The angel, not just an angel, but the angel of the Lord. And there are times where this phrase is used, and this angel is speaking as though he is God. And we would say, and most commentators will say, that's an appearance of the pre incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. He speaks for God, he receives worship as though he were God. And definitely, uh, cases of the pre-incarnate Christ. Done. Okay, yeah. Could Adam and Eve have seen God before they sinned and not been stricken? I guess you'd say, right? Is that what I suppose so. That's an interesting question. I never thought about that. And um, was God there in His full glory beforehand? I kind of doubt it, but I don't. I, we can't. I don't know. We have anything that's. Conclusive on that, but before they fell into sin, yeah, that's an interesting question. We'll have to ask that one when we get when we get there, Mark. Yeah, and again, that's that's at Mount Sinai again, and uh, again we think that had to be not in God's full blown glory again. He um, humbles Himself for our sake in the Old Testament that that we just couldn't take the the full, uh, omniscient, uh, uh, holy God in our presence. Yes, sir. And Do you know what the uh, hiding of uh, Moses? And the cleft of the cleft behind the rock of age's cleft? Well, good, good question. Uh, so the cleft of the rock is that rock of age's cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. That's interesting. I never thought of that. That's probably the case. We are putting ourselves in Moses' condition at that time. Yeah, that's a good one. I never never thought of that. Yes, so their comment was about the rock that Moses struck and the water came gushing out. And uh, that, that one case is where Moses got in trouble. Remember, he did not give God the glory, and that's the reason he doesn't get to go into the promised land. Yeah. All right. That's an interesting point. I never thought of that. The, rock, the comparison of the rock of ages cleft for me. All right. All right. Let's get on uh, going further now. 19. And this is the testimony of John. This would be John the Baptist. Now, this is the testimony of John the Baptist when the Jews sent priests and Levites from, uh, from Jerusalem. So, again, as I said before, that John is getting very popular, and you can just see now that the Jews are beginning, the, the radar is starting to go up. Who is this guy? We've got to find out about him. All right, so priests and Levites. Levi was one of the sons of Jacob in the Old Testament, and they were the, quote-unquote, priestly tribe. It is the case that all priests had to be Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Okay? But the priests came from the tribe of Levi. The priests in the Old Testament were pretty much the people, you might say, they were sort of the intercessors for people before God, they're the ones who did all the sacrificing at the temple with all the all the animals. They're the ones who uh, went interceded with prayer as well. The others, the other Levites, the other members of that tribe that were still around, uh, would would again be around the temple or earlier the tabernacle. They would guard the temple, they would clean the temple, and so on, and care for the. They also were singers. They were the singers uh, in worship. So uh, our modern choirs, I guess, go back to, go back to the, the Levites. Um, and uh, by the way, um, uh, John the Baptist's parents were of the tribe of Levi, and remember, Zechariah was a priest. Okay? So here's John the Baptist out in the wilderness. His dad is a priest, and his mom, they're both Levites, and here come the priests and the Levites to question John the Baptist. You think they're kind of favorably disposed toward John the Baptist? Probably. Because look at what they ask him. Going to verse, uh, let's see, verse 20. Uh, He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not this one, who is the Christ? So what might they have asked him first? We don't have it recorded there, but what might they have what might they have started with? Are you the Christ? Right? And John, not John the Baptist, but John records here how John the Baptist made it abundantly clear he is not the Christ. Next they ask him, and they asked him, What then are you Elijah? Now, why did they ask him, "Are you Elijah?" Elijah is one of two in the Old Testament that what? What was so special about Elijah? Okay, yeah, there, well, there's a lot of things special I guess about Elijah. I should ask that better. Elijah is one of two people in the Old Testament that we think what did not die. Remember, he was taken by God up in a, a fiery chariot, right? And Enoch, uh, it says simply, Enoch walked with God and was no more, or something like that in, the, in um, Genesis. So, there, they, but there's more than that. It's more than that he just didn't see death. It actually goes back to Malachi. So, again, if you want to keep your finger here, or bookmark it, whatever you're doing, if you've got on a phone. goes back to Malachi in the Old Testament, And Malachi is what? The last book of the Old Testament. And he makes a prediction here. So let's go to Malachi. First of all, let's go to 3 verse 1. And then we're going to 4 verse 5. 3 verse 1 of Malachi Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, who might this messenger be that's going to prepare the way? John the Baptist. But then look at 4 verse 5. 4 verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So here's why the people at that time were looking for Elijah to come, literally for Elijah to come. Okay? And they're asking John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Oh, well, no, that's interesting. Because let's take a look at Matthew chapter 11. So move ahead of, uh, about the middle of Matthew. 11, 11 through 14. Matthew 11, 11 through 14. So this is uh, Jesus. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So this is Jesus talking about John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is to come. Now I thought we just heard Elijah say, I'm not. One more. Matthew 17... 9 through 13. Matthew 17, 9 through 13. This is right after the Transfiguration. And by the way, as Barb mentioned earlier, who's up there on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus? Moses and Elijah, right? All right. Uh, Verse 9 of Matthew 17. And as they were coming down the mountain, so this would be Jesus, Peter, James, John... Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. (laughs) Kind of a, we slide over this, but there's a prediction he's going to rise from the dead right there. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered him, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, But did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased. If that's John the Baptist, what had they done to him by now? He was beheaded, right? And remember, well, we won't go into the story about how, how all that happened. So how do we, how do we uh, reckon this? How do we reconcile the fact that, he, that John the Baptist says, no, I'm not Elijah, but Jesus says, oh, yes, he he's already come, and uh, they did what they pleased with him. So he is, in the sense, he is not Elijah in the sense that he is not the flesh and blood of Elijah but he has fulfilled the role that Elijah was to fulfill. In other words, he is the messenger who comes before, we read in Malachi 3 verse 1, and he's fulfilling his role of preparing the way. And that waiting for Elijah to come was again the expectation that God would send one. And isn't it easy for us to see how the people of that time were expecting the flesh and blood Elijah to come. Because Malachi said he's coming, right? So they're waiting for Elijah to come. And John the Baptist makes it clear he is not the flesh and blood of Elijah. He is not, okay? But Jesus makes it very clear that he fulfilled Elijah's role, okay? So this is really a hard one, and, and it would appear to contradict itself but not so when understood that way. Yes? <laughs> yeah, good point. That uh, Elijah, the point was Elijah couldn't have, uh, I'm sorry, Malachi couldn't have said John the Baptist is coming before him because who would have known, what, what is he talking about, right? What's this guy babbling about? Okay? So, uh, it's interesting, at least to me, that, uh, again, John the Baptist fulfills the role of Elijah to come. So with this, the people should be ready. And notice there, by asking those questions, the people are kind of expecting that now is the time when something, when the, when the Christ is going to be coming. And they're trying to figure this out. Is this guy John the Baptist, is he the one, or not? Okay, you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, and finally they get down to now they're down to the third tier. Are you the prophet? And we won't we don't have the time to look it up, but in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18, uh, Moses talks about sending a prophet, uh, God sending a prophet like himself. Okay, so they were expecting the Christ, they were expecting Elijah to come. At that, around that same time, and they were expecting, in addition to that, a prophet that God was going to send. They're going to be disappointed because here John the Baptist denies, I'm not him, I'm not him, and I'm not him. Okay? He is one simply to prepare the way. He says, I am not. And then uh, he, he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. That is a direct quote of Isaiah 40, verse 3. And notice here, John attributes that to himself. In the other three Gospels that all talk, about, this, about John the Baptist's ministry, they all attribute Isaiah 40, verse 3 to him, but in the Gospel of John, we see John the Baptist attributing it to himself, right? So he starts talking Messianic language here. He is the one who is out in the wilderness making straight the way of the Lord, or preparing the way for the Lord, for the Messiah to come, okay? Uh, as Isaiah prophesied. All right? Uh, yes, Mark? It's interesting that, that I kind do of the question was on their mind, but he, he answers it before they ask them. I'm not. Right. Just get this straight. I'm not. Right. Otherwise, I guess they are the bishop Yeah. So the point was he. you can see that, again, by the, them even asking these questions, They are expecting the Messiah is going to be coming and uh, waiting for something to happen. And again, John the Baptist keeps insisting he is not the Christ, he is not the prophet, he is not Elijah, okay? All right, just real quickly, and then we'll have to go. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. That's probably not the best translation of that. Uh, it, It probably should read, some of those who were sent were Pharisees, okay? So from the Pharisees, no, the Pharisees did not command the, the priests and the Levites around. And probably a better translation is that some of them were, who were sent were Pharisees. By the way, were Pharisees clergy? No, they were lay people. Yeah, they were lay people, like our uh, Lutheran Layman's League. <laughs> I beat you to it, Mark. <laughs> they were lay people, not clergy. So, I mean, they didn't, they didn't order the, the priests and the Levites around and tell them to go, go out there and find out about this guy. They were lay people, and they're, they're, whereas the, the Levites and the priests, they focused more on the worship life and the temple and the sacrifices. The Pharisees focused all of their attention on the keeping of the law and living according to the law. And we're going to see in future weeks... They just butt heads with Jesus, uh, one right after another. And so to them, the relationship with God was perfectly keeping the law. You do this, and God will be happy with you. And uh, that's not the way God intended it to begin with. But unfortunately, by the time of Jesus, things had degenerated. That that was kind of their understanding. And Jesus is going to have to change all of that, change their thinking. And some of them will get it. But for the most part, it looks like a lot of them did not, okay? But they were lay people, and uh, frankly, among some of the Jews, they had a great deal of respect for the Pharisees, because they were sort of, they were looked upon as kind of on a, on a pedestal, and look at how they're, they're keeping the law, so to speak. The, well, anyway, Jesus is going to show them how they're insisting on the law, but they're not keeping it themselves. It's sort of hypocritical of it, Okay. All right, we've got to stop there. Uh, I don't care if you're all getting mad at us. So let's uh, close with the benediction then. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. All right, thank you.